Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Today, we'll be continuing our series in Acts. So we come to Acts chapter 19, verse 21, and on the heels of studying a half-hearted faith last week, we come to a big-hearted faith in the Apostle Paul. And we see, first of all, that he was big-hearted towards strangers, outsiders, people that were not like him. After all this had happened, verse 21 of chapter 19, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing from Macedonia and Achaia, through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. So he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia, specifically uh, Ephesus, a little while longer. He stayed there three more months. So his time in Ephesus was about two years, and Ephesus was this huge revival that we studied last week. Uh, as we studied the burning of different manuscripts of black magic and, and white magic, people from very, very dark backgrounds turning to faith in Jesus Christ. I want to have you look at the map and see the area we're talking about. We're in Paul's third missionary journey. This area with all these different regions is the area of modern-day Turkey, about the size of Texas. Now, those of you that have never been to the country of Texas, (laughs) you have no idea how big it is. But I remember traveling when we, we lived on the East Coast for nine years, and we were finally coming home to California, and we decided to go the southern route this time because when we moved east, we went the northern route. And I just remember traveling from New Orleans to El Paso, and it just, it took months. <laughs> it just seemed like, especially as you leave the Dallas-Houston area, you just think, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we? You're, you're never going to be there. You're never going to get to New Mexico. Well, Paul on foot, on foot, travels a couple of times across Texas. <laughs> but he not only wants to reach this region, you'll remember he was the first one to bring the gospel to Europe, uh, Macedonia and Achaia, most of the area we would call modern Greece. So certainly bringing the gospel to Europe And he mentions all these areas, got to get there, got to get there. And then in this passage, he says, and I got to get to Rome. Are you out of your mind, Paul? Easy, easy. He's a traveling maniac. Go, go, go. For the first century, this guy was a mover and a shaker. But the question has to be asked, W-H, why? Why? Why would he do this? He has it. He has Jesus. He has heaven. He has salvation. He has it all. Slow down. Retire, Paul. You got it all. There was something driving him to keep moving. And here, he's thinking, he's praying, and he's planning. If you read the end of Romans, you find out that he's even planning to go to Spain. This guy, 
that discovered Jesus. And if you ask the question why, the answer is simple. He gives it to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The love of Christ compels me. When you and I discover the love of Christ, boom. Why would God love you? And could it be that God wants to include other people outside of the circle to come into the circle? Now, the question has to be asked, now, how would that happen? And usually we say, well, they have to step inside my circle. I've drawn the line. This is what a normal, healthy human being Christian looks like, me. And here's the line, and they need to become like me. But Paul, ministering to people unlike him, whether in Athens, these uh, Stoics and Epicurean philosophers, in Corinth, just decadent sinners, in uh, Ephesus, people uh, into the occult, people very, very different than his religious Judaic upbringing. But he spreads the circle, not to authenticate their lifestyle, but to tell them, yes, God loves you. And that hard line that creates the circle is really more a dotted line that wants to invite other people into the circle. You see it all the time in Jesus' ministry, don't you? Jesus' ministry... He gives us this parable. The parable is uh, of the, uh, the good shepherd. He says, the good shepherd leaves the 99. The 99 are good. They're just good, wholesome, uh, spiritual people that have found it. And he says, he goes out and searches for the one. And searches mean effort, travel. He's got to find that lost lamb. Now, you would think, you know, you're, you're a shepherd. You know that there's, there's certain sheep you're going to lose. You've got to build that into your budget. You know, there's just going to be certain loss in your corporation, and you've got to deal with that. But because of the love of God, the good shepherd says, no, there's still a chance I could find this person. There's still a chance that that person could turn around and come back. Now, here's an exercise for the morning where I go from preaching to meddling. Is there a person in your mind that you can think of, first of all, that you know that you, you would quite frankly love it if they would stay outside your circle? Now, I know you'd probably, oh, no, no, I'm amazing, and everyone's invited into my circle. Think about the neighbor that decided to paint their fence chartreuse and their house purple and, and, uh, and doesn't like to come to neighborhood parties. Think about an in-law that you're glad you only get together once a year. Thinking of, of an outlaw. Some of you are turning to one another and mentioning names I can see. Uh, <laughs> Think about the cubicle next to you. Think about a political person. 
There's got to be someone in your life that you say, when I get to heaven, if he or she's in heaven, I hope that they're at the other end of heaven. (laughs) Well, guess what? I can almost guarantee you they're going to have the address next door to you. (laughs) Because you're going to need to grow a little bit, even in heaven, to discover that God's circle is bigger than your circle. And Paul, he discovered this. As he held the clothing of of Stephen, as he's being stoned to death, and he's thinking, that guy is not in God's circle. And God said, no, he is in my circle. And he discovered the love of Jesus Christ. Well, when he goes back to the Torah, he realizes that the entire Old Testament is missional. The reason the Jews were chosen was not because they were the biggest, most special people inherent in themselves, but God tells us over and over again, he chose the least of the people so that they might become missional and live out God's law and God's ways in a way that the whole world could discover the love of God. And so now that Jesus has come, the ultimate Jew, the ultimate Israelite, the the door is open and the way is available for you and me. Some of you aren't familiar with the, uh, the origins of Calvary Chapel as a movement, but I was there. I was there back in Orange County when all these, I'm not going to even call them hippies, but we'll call them uh, suburban hippie types, you know, that grew up in suburbia and uh, grew their hair long and decided to go barefoot and drop out of the program and largely get high. And the churches in Orange County would not have any one of these darkened the door, nor did any one of these, and I should say we's, want to go in any of those churches. But Chuck Smith opened the door, and he allowed the circle to be bigger. And there was a huge discussion in that day as to whether the people that were coming to faith in Christ were truly Christian because their hair was still long. It's a great question. Their hair is still long. Were they Christian? And there were articles in the Santa Ana Register about that, discussing it. And the the large verdict among clergy like me was they're not truly believers. And Chuck ought to be ashamed of himself for not making them cut their hair the moment they accept Jesus. You see, now we look back and they say, that's ridiculous, hair. But think of it. You have something, that's where the circle line is created. It's they would be like, they would do, and what is that? Listen, my friends, it's Christ plus nothing. It's the love of Christ plus nothing. And the rest of us, we're just still kind of We're forgiven, but we're not perfect. We're not there. Well, I don't want to give you all of my message all at once, so let's let's move on here. I love the fact that Buzz, our men's pastor, is reaching out and has been given a carte blanche, a blank 
uh, check to now bring as many mentors as we can into the Vista jailhouse because he's earned the cred of the management there. And now we're going from six men going in weekly to 36 men that are going to go in weekly. Uh, And that's a great question. Can the circle include a criminal? So we come to verse 23, chapter 19, and we see that Paul's big heart overcomes tremendous resistance. This is the biggest riot he ever experiences that we know of in his ministry. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Remember, that was the name for Christianity before it received the term Christians. It started as a subset of Judaism. All the first believers were all Jewish in Jerusalem, and the name was called by the rest of the community, the way, because Jesus called himself the way, the truth, and the life. A silversmith named Demetrius, who was probably the the union leader, the guild leader of the silversmiths, uh, who made silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of uh, hunting because Artemis was the goddess of all the animals and of the moon because animals go out in in the moonlight at night. And And the Roman name for her was Diana. And he called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we received a good income from this business. And you see here how this fellow, Paul, has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. That's almost a direct quote from many of the Old Testament prophets who mocked and criticized the people of Israel when they would follow uh, idols. You and I know, I mean, if you sit down and carve a little tiki god and put it in your garden, uh, we all know it's not really a god. It's, It's a nice decoration for your garden. Well, they believed that you could actually make a god and then bow down and worship this god because of what it represents. So he says there is a danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess of Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Now, this guy is brilliant, Demetrius, because at, at the outset, he tells us the real reason he's giving this speech. He's given the speech because of economic reasons. I'm telling you, show me the money. People will let you do whatever you're going to do until you touch their money. And then suddenly there's a problem. But we can't just say, hey, you're touching my money because that's socially inappropriate. It seems selfish to just cry money. So he cloaks the argument in other things. He cloaks the argument by saying uh, that it threatens the divine majesty of Artemis and whom we worship and uh, that 
it threatens the temple of the great goddess Artemis. So he's cloaking it like we're talking about family and mother and apple pie and all of these emotional reasons when the real issue is if many more people, and it's quite a compliment to the awakening that was happening in Ephesus, that could it be that so many people were turning to Christ that they were actually not worshiping and giving money to the temple of Artemis? If it was true, that was truly, uh, in the words of J. Edwin Orr, a true revival that changes society. That was his definition, that if people are turning to Christ and it does nothing to change the community, then how real is our revival? But when uh, suddenly things start shutting down, uh, the dark places of community start changing and shutting down, then you realize, wow, this is really an awakening and a revival. Let me pause here and have the uh, PowerPoint person just jump ahead and show you uh, some of the things regarding Artemis. This is uh, a replica, uh, a scaled replica in Turkey of the temple of Artemis. Uh, it's considered to be one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. This is three times the size of the Parthenon. It was huge. It was magnificent, and people would come there all from all over the world, uh, including Artemis, Diana, to be one of their many gods or goddesses that they worshiped. If you go forward, you can see uh, uh, what it looks like today. If you go to Ephesus, this is a big, big open field that's left blank because it's left letting you know where the temple stood. And at the very beginning of this set, you'll see a picture of Diana uh, or Artemis. And so there she is, a beautiful goddess with her hunting bow, and uh, she's petting a deer. And if you want to go hunting, you need her blessing because she is the goddess of the animals. So when everyone hears this, they began shouting, verse 28, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So he's connected with their emotions. Now, here's something for you and I to understand. When you come up to a stranger and uh, you decide to include them in your circle and say, you know what? God actually loves you too. I want you to know the love of Jesus Christ too. Uh, you, a person that's hearing that for the first time um, isn't just neutrally living. They have a belief system, even if they're atheists, they have a thought process of how the world is and the purpose and meaning of the world. They've, they've thought a little bit about that, and that is usually very close in their heart, connected to their country. It's connected to their mother and father. It's connected to their community. It's connected to all the memories that they remember growing up. You with me? So at first glance, it's threatening. So as we, as a community, drive down to El Cajon, and many of us do, to bring the love of Christ to our dear Muslim refugee friends who have come to this country, there's a thousand families from Iraq and Syria that live here in San Diego, you may not have known that, um, and as we reach out with the love of God, we don't come saying, you know, we want to change you. 
God forbid. Jesus was Middle Eastern, right? <laughs> His culture was probably more like their culture. So what we do is just become friends. And it's out of their free will that they choose. They discover what we're teaching and what Muhammad taught, and they decide. But guess what? If they decide not to accept Jesus Christ, I'm still going to be their friend, just like I am in my own neighborhood. I, you know, I, I, I'm still your friend, and I still love you, but you are invited. You are invited into the circle to discover the wonderful love of Jesus. But if you come in strong and hard, you can see why people would react resistantly and saying things like, great, great as Artemis, uh, and, and, and shouting. So soon the whole city was in an uproar. So they see this as a threat. And they seize Gaius and Aristarchus, who were two Christians traveling with Paul, uh, companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Let me show you a picture of this theater. This theater exists to this day. Isn't that amazing? Built a couple of hundred years before Paul, seats 25,000 people. We could still have a rock concert there. In fact, it's made of rock. And when I was walking around this, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is the very theater Paul wanted to rush into. It's packed with people screaming, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. They've dragged Gaius and Aristarchus into the theater and they're standing there being held and they don't know, are we living or dying? Is this, is this gonna end our lives or are, are we gonna go on living? And Paul, his big heart says, let me, let me, send me in, coach. Send me in. I can calm them down. I can explain to them. But why does he really want to go in? Because he's thinking, this is a ready-made audience. I can preach to 25,000 people and say, you could be in God's circle. We're not threatening your culture. We're just showing you that the God of animals and the God of all of life is available for you in the person of Jesus. But his friends said, no bueno. Paul, you are not going in there because you won't live. Even some uh, provincial leaders, obviously politicians that had come to faith. So in verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, you see, they just associated it all somehow with Judaism, and they began screaming and shouting for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours. I mean, that's time for people to walk around with popcorn, peanuts, candy corn, snacks. I mean, to, to sell 
snacks and drinks to all these 25,000 people. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? That was the tradition. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. And I think that's a cue for all of us, that we as Christians, when we're sharing the love of Christ, we do not demean or blaspheme other worldviews or other gods. Or, I mean, that's not the point. If the point is if you can stand the message of Jesus up against anything and let a person choose, there it is, a Lamborghini or a 40-year-old VW bug, your choice. Sorry, some of you are very passionate about <laughs> punch buggies, as we used to call them. Let the person choose. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anyone, the courts are open. There are proconsuls, governors, and they can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger right now of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. He's referring to Caesar, Rome. They do not want uh, to be demeaned by Rome because of this instance. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Paul lived this way of life. What way of life? Rioting. It seemed that wherever he went, whether to Gentiles or to Jews, there was this strong emotion pushback. If you go back to Philippi, when he first went to Macedonia, guess what? Look at the map again. When he gets to Philippi, he is, map? Where is the map again? Uh, when he gets to Philippi, he, <laughs> yeah, let, let's uh, go in even closer. Can we do that? There. When he gets up to Philippi, guess what? He's imprisoned. He gets to uh, Thessalonica. The Jews are upset with him. The, the, first, it was the, in, in Philippi, it, it was others, but he gets to Thessalonica. The Jews are upset with him, so he has to leave secretly. He goes to Berea. It's great success. But the Jews that were against him as a Jew, now they follow him from Thessalonica and there's problems. He finally gets to Athens, and it's a completely, seemingly intellectual culture. He's talking with Stoics and Epicureans, but when they get to the issue of the resurrection, they push back, and they say, this guy's out of his mind. We'll talk to him another time. And they end the meeting. He gets to Corinth, and there's a huge riot that we just studied. Again, fortunately, the governor there declares religious freedom, and Paul is let go. And now we find him back over here to Ephesus to find the largest riot yet. 25,000 people potentially that are upset over this particular issue. 
It's a way of life. Here's a question for you and me. Do we as Christians go underground because we want to be liked? It's a great question. I don't want any problems. I don't want anyone to think ill of me. So I'll just go underground and kind of keep it to myself. I remember just being a brand new Christian, two weeks old in the faith, coming back from Christmas vacation, 18 years old, freshman in college, uh, biology lab. And, and, and the other guy at our lab table, there were two guys, two girls at our lab table, and uh, we were waiting for the professor to come in. And the, the guy who had been a Vietnam vet, so he's quite a bit older than me, he was now back in college, and he says, let's share what we did this Christmas vacation. So here's the question. What's the biggest and best thing that happened to you this Christmas vacation? <laughs> I mean, I knew instantly. I had discovered Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus loved me. And I won't even go into the, the gory details of how that happened, but... I should not have been accepted into the circle because of the things I was doing. But Jesus accepted me. It made such a profound impact on me. So we went around the circle, and I was the last to share. And I was just like, oh, what else can I share? You know, I played with my dog. I, uh, you know, I just <laughs> I got the presents I wanted, or, you know. And, and he said, how about you, Mark? If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before And I'm just like, oh, God. And I said, well, I don't know what you guys think about this, but uh, I gave my heart and life to Jesus Christ. Wow. Now, you would think in a healthy, normal society, people would say, that's great. Add a boy. You didn't pillage any villages. You know, you didn't go down to Mexico and get drunk again. You actually... You know, that's great, but it just went stone silent. And finally, the Vietnam vet broke the silence, and he said, well, Mark, I'm really happy for you. I think some people need a crutch. You know, I could feel I'm a scrapper. I'm, a, I'm small, but I'm like a chihuahua, you know. <laughs> and... Everything in me wanted to climb over that lab table and just grab a hold of his neck or scratch his face, poke out his eyes, pull his hair out, whatever. And I thought, well, that wouldn't be a good witness. <laughs> and so I just took it, just went silent. But I just sat there through the rest of the class. So that's what people say. When you tell them the pearl of your life, the deepest, most precious thing in your life. They don't know what they'll do with it. But I thought, you know, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, it's the one that yelps the loudest that got hit. So maybe he got hit. And it's a deflection to get rid of the truth. So there is gonna be pushback when you broaden the circle, when you include, whether it's Jew or Gentile, your neighbors, your relatives. Relatives are always the toughest. Uh, work associate. There's someone that's gonna push back. 
Now, we don't have pushback like they do in Iraq and Syria with ISIS. And by the way, the news is ISIS is alive again. They never were dead. They went underground, and now they're doing guerrilla warfare in Syria and in Iraq. Just letting you know, persecution for Christians and Yazidis. So we don't have that, but we do have pushback. And will I go completely underground where no one knows, only my hairdresser knows who I am, what I stand for. But God wants you to enlarge the circle and take the risk of love. So we come now to the final section where Paul shows his big heart, not just for the outsiders, but for the people already in the circle. It says in verse 1, and I'm going to go quickly because uh, of the time, uh, that he, he decides now to go up to Macedonia and, and visit all these different cities, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, and give encouragement, imparting words. What we know from First and Second Corinthians, he's also having his men, his, his that travel with him, take up an offering. And it was very much like Nick shared with us this morning, that it's a free will offering. It comes out of your heart, not out of uh, being coerced and guilted in any way, but just simply a free offering that was being taken for the Christians back in Jerusalem. And that was a beautiful picture because it's largely Gentiles uh, reaching out to their brothers and sisters who are largely Jewish in Jerusalem. And, and then it says in verse 6, uh, they set sail for Philippi after the festival uh, of unleavened bread. And, uh, and then he, also something to be aware of, I don't have the time to go into the details, but he finds out that uh, there's a plot as he's setting sail for Jerusalem, there's a plot to take his life that's going to happen on that ship. And so he decides that God is leading him not to go on that ship, um, that that would be unwise. And he takes the land route, goes back up to Macedonia, and then sails down to uh, Ephesus. And so now we come to an interesting story. I think you'll like this, and then uh, we'll bring the whole thing to a close. In verse 7, on the first day of the week, to break bread, uh, he meets with the Christians. And Paul, because he knows this is his last time he's going to see all of these people, he talks until midnight. Beware, preachers, you know. Oh, preachers love to talk. And be, just telling you, beware. Uh, when, I, when I meet with my fellow preachers and they want to tell me what they preached, this is, this is interesting. Uh, this is like a Tuesday morning. And I say, well, how'd the weekend go? And they start giving me their message. I'm sitting there drinking coffee and I'm thinking, really? Is this really happening? <laughs> You're not going to give me your whole message, are you? you know? We get so passionate about what we're talking about that it's hard to get over it. So Paul goes on till midnight. And there's this man, Eutychus, sitting in the, in the window and uh, OSHA didn't exist, so there are no rules and railings in those days. And uh, while Paul is talking, he falls asleep, falls three stories out the window. 
Paul interrupts his sermon, runs down three flights, and lays himself on the young man, puts his arms around him. And you know he's praying the prayer of life. Oh, God, if you were ever God, this is a good time to bring, be God. Raise this young man from the dead. Beautiful, beautiful story, knowing that this is a physician writing about this spontaneous event. And Paul feels him take that breath of life, and he says, he's alive. Then they went back upstairs. They had communion and ate. And he talked some more <laughs> until daylight. <laughs> Let me tell you what I would have said if I had the time to say what I was going to say. And so he goes ahead and says it. Now we come to this poignant moment where Paul says goodbye to the Ephesians. He's, he's lived with them for two years, and he meets them in Miletus. Can we see the map again? He doesn't go all the way inland to Ephesus, but uh, he goes to uh, Mileta as, as he's sailing down right here. So these elders travel down from Ephesus to meet him. Then he's going to go to uh, sail to Kos and then to Rhodes. I've been to Rhodes, a very beautiful island, and then all the way on to uh, eventually to Jerusalem. So he says to the elders four things. I want you to see him here. He says to them, I have served God with great humility. Now, that's awkward. Anytime someone says, I've been amazingly humble. <laughs> but I don't think that's the spirit of what Paul is saying. He's saying, I have been a servant leader. I have modeled servant leadership to you. And so he's saying, come on, you guys, you're leaders now. Be servant leaders. That's number one. Then he says, um, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that God has given me. What is that task, Paul? The task of testifying the good news of God's grace. Oh, there it is, number two. Don't ever move beyond the grace of God. If you move beyond the grace of God, you've moved too far. The grace of God is undeserved love and favor. Is there a reason why you should be in the kingdom of God? The answer is no. In and of you, in and of yourself. The answer is in Jesus. Because of Jesus, because he paid the price for your sin, because he paid the ticket for you to be there, it's all grace. And because you are a person of grace, you become a messenger of grace. Number three, he says, now, I know that I'll never see you again, but in verse 26, I'm innocent of the blood of any of you because I've told you the truth. So he says in verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and over the flock for which God, the Holy Spirit, has made you overseers. I know that wolves are gonna come in, they're gonna distort the truth, change the message, and so he says, be on your guard. And so that's the third thing that he tells them, be on your guard. But there's something else here I want you to, to revisit with me. In verse 21, he says, I have declared both to Jews and to Greeks, Gentiles. 
a diverse audience. Everybody gets to come into the circle. Don't make the circle smaller than it's supposed to be, this circle of grace that God has given you. And so Paul, it says, he weeps, he prays, he embraces and kisses them, and he leaves and sets sail for home. So folks, how big is your heart? How big is your circle? It's a great question, isn't it? Do you remember the number one reason why Jesus got pushed back from the religious leaders in Jerusalem? The number one reason is because he was hanging around having dinner with sinners. He loved people beyond their tight circle. They would talk about each other. How could Jesus do this? He should know that that guy is a tax collector and cheats on people to get money from Rome. He should know that that lady had been a prostitute and she lived a horrendous life. He should know that that person is just a friend of sinners. Why would Jesus be with those people? Answer, because that's the heart of God. And if there's anything in me that says I should be in the circle, I've got to have that straightened out because I should not be in the circle. If there's anything in you that says, yep, if can't blame God. If I, would, I were God, I would have loved me too. Adorable me. As long as we're aware that God is loving people that are outside the circle, because I was outside the circle, we're doing good. So Jesus stretches us. And I don't think this, you know, I've been following Jesus for a couple of years now. And I don't think this message ever changes. I think he's constantly stretching us because our heart wants to contract. He wants to stretch us and say, no. I want, to, I want to love those people too. And so he's going to put people into your life that are going to bother you. I had, I had a lady bother me all the way on the five here this morning. <laughs> I've noticed that people are irritated about my little Prius, you know, when they have a very big, uh, fancy car. And so I was driving in the fast lane, and she came up in her big, fancy car behind me. And um, I... I thought I was just in the way, so I pulled over, uh, even though I, I should have slowed down because I was going way too fast. Uh, she pulls behind me and just right on my bumper. And I'm thinking, Mark, don't go back to being the old Mark. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to push my hazard lights on and then slow way down, <laughs> wave to her. <laughs> I said, Mark, don't do it. God wants her in the circle. <laughs> so I pull over one more lane, and she pulls up next to me. And I'm thinking, oh, boy. Uh, she probably has a little uh, Christian gesture she's uh, using or something. And uh, finally, I look over at her, and she's just glaring at me. And I'm just thinking, oh, my gosh, you know on my way to church, you know. <laughs> but I asked the question, does God want her in the circle? I'm telling you, in my flesh, I hope not. 
in my San Diego circle, I hope she makes it all the way back to OC and stays there. <laughs> but in my, in my redeemed circle, knowing God's love for me, he loves her too. He loves every one of us. He's not willing that any of us should perish, big-hearted God, but that all of us should discover the love of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to you, we ask that you give us heart surgery. We ask that you would stretch out our hearts that have contracted whether because of our view of Christian culture, whether our view of, of how church should be, how Christians should be, God, that it will include the world you loved and died for. And God, we return to our roots, pray the prayer of the sinner on the corner who said, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we shed the skin of the Pharisee that said, I thank God that I'm not like those sinners. Oh, God, forgive us. Show us your big heart. And God, give us practical means how to reach out, how to diffuse, how to start the conversation how to build friendships that eventually lead to sharing the love of God. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.